Las Vegas, famous, fabulous playground of the West. A wide open town that never goes to sleep. Vegas! Vegas, baby, Vegas! You're either in or you're out. Right now. My best mates are going to Las Vegas this weekend. I'm told it's incredible. Las Vegas, here we go! Pack your bags and get ready. You're going to Vegas with someone who knows Vegas inside and out. This is Vegas Never Sleeps with Stephen Maggi, the podcast. For years, French cuisine was only for the foodie. The rich people ate it. It was something that only the, the best breeding and so forth really had it for any time. You might have it once a year, maybe once every couple of years. That's all changing right now. And you're going to meet Chef Justin Wells, who's kind of making it his crusade. Now, Justin, welcome to the show. Is bringing French cuisine kind of to the mainstream one of your passions? Yeah, I'd say so. I mean, I think that I think that, it, it, as I explained to a lot of people, I think French cuisine is really more of a philosophy because you, you get the question all the time, you know, what do you serve at the restaurant and things like that. And they're always sort of shocked how, I guess, normal the food seems. You know, they they tend to uh, zone in on, on the sort of uh, caricature of French cuisine versus it just being like, well, you know, it's Northwest ingredients and prepared in a French style. So, you know, at the beginning when we opened, that was a, a lot trickier of a stigma to get past versus now I think people are a lot more comfortable with what that means and 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 how it relates to food that they're eating. Yeah, people don't seem to have any kind of problem with French desserts, but when it comes to the entrees, I guess the the mind goes right to snails and you got to tell them it's a lot more than that, right? (laughs) Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, you have the classic stuff, you know, what I consider like bistro fare and a lot of that stuff, you know, those are really like, you know, French countryside dishes, beef bourguignon, dab de boeuf, cassoulet, things like that, you know, that people have, have sort of latched onto. I mean, that's not really fine dining in the respective as we know it now. You know, people have taken those dishes and elevated them. I mean, clearly when I make cassoulet, it's like I'm taking the very best of what I have and sort of combining that into that dish. But I mean, really, those are like rustic elements of that type of stuff. So I think when you get into the luxurious side of it, you're talking more about the sauces that accompany things like that. And a lot of people don't understand that those types of things have really infiltrated American cuisine as we know it and being a lot more normal. So I think when you talk about, you know, an ingredient like you say pork belly and people kind of, you know, what's pork belly? And that obviously got really trendy for a while, but it's just like, well, it's bacon. And then you (laughs) say that and they latch on. They're like, oh, I get it. Okay, it's bacon. It's just not cut into strips like they're used to. One of the things that we did was we got rid of the French verbiage on the menu, which we clung to that for a long time, and we were very proud of that. But I think it also, removing that from the menu kind of removed some of the hurdles that people had, you know, because we want people to come in and be comfortable and sit down and order and not have to feel like, you know, they're pointing at the menu or, you know, don't want to say something that's a, a strange word to them. And it just kind of lowered the barrier for people. And I think it was hugely helpful. Let's tell people a little bit about your restaurant. If you're in the Pacific Northwest, it's a great visit. It's this cute little place that has incredible food, La Petite Maison. I understand, you know, you mentioned Zoe, your lovely wife. You actually, your first date was there, as I understand it. Yeah. Yeah, it's kind of funny. I always joke that, you know, you couldn't write a better story if you tried to make it up. 
you know, I've always loved that restaurant. It's been a restaurant since 1977. We, yeah, we had our first date there, and we actually subsequently got married there some years later. And uh, it was kind of funny when I approached Randall about, you know, I said, hey, I want to get married here. We love this restaurant. I'd like to rent the place. And he said, okay, you know, let's talk about the menu. And I said, no, I like to rent it. I want, like, just <laughs> give me the whole restaurant. And I wound up actually cooking for my own wedding, which was sort of maddening. But everybody that knows me knows that that's... Um, pretty normal for me. So we did a huge feast. It was a really tiny wedding. We only had 30 people and, and did food for about 150. And everybody did a good job uh, eating and drinking. So it was, it was really fun. Well, we'll talk a little bit more about the restaurant, but I want to get to know you a little bit. Where did you grow up? Did you grow up in the Northwest? Yeah, Olympia, born and raised. And your childhood. People that, that know you say, my God, this guy and food just go together. Did you grow up like that? Were your parents great cooks? And what kind of cuisine did you grow up with? No, not at all, actually. We were very, very American. You know, we had the classic, like, you know, spaghetti on Wednesday night and, and taco salad on Tuesday night and sort of, um, yeah, just very classic all-American, you know, grill hot dogs on the weekend kind of stuff. My grandmother, who was widowed at a fairly young age, I spent a lot of time with her. She actually lived on a lake. My parents owned businesses growing up, and so they were quite busy. So I spent a lot of time with her. She wasn't a gourmand, but she definitely enjoyed nice food, wasn't afraid to spend money on great food, was very classic, like, generational of roast a turkey, eat the turkey that night, the next day make sandwiches for lunch, make soup that night, you know, kind of use every part of it. And so I learned to eat a lot of that sort of style of food from her. Yeah. Um, you know, and cooking stuff and bacon grease and a cast iron, sort of all the all the stuff that everybody kind of jokes about that era. But a lot of that food has circled back to being sort of the most popular. People use the term comfort food. So she cooked a lot of stuff like that and very seasonal. She'd make fruitcake from scratch at Christmas and she'd make pumpkin pies from scratch at Thanksgiving. And so there was a lot of that element of her where it's like you didn't go out and buy a pumpkin pie like you can at Costco right now. You had to make it if you wanted it. So you decide, eh, I like food. Again, it's not the passion yet. And then you go to work at Olive Garden and you really learned not so much how wonderful the food, I'm not trying to do an ad for them, but rather how the business works and so forth. And that kind of fascinated you, didn't it? For sure. I mean, anytime you have a business, you know, where 200 people work there, I mean, clearly they're doing something right. I mean, I don't denigrate them as a business model. I mean, it's not food that speaks to me, but, you know, there I learned a lot of time management. I learned dealing with interpersonal relationships with employees, working as a team, working in high pressure situations. And so there was a lot of that sort of aspect there. And going there was really more of a situation where I could work at night and I aspired to go to school. And so that allowed me, you know, basically to work part time and have have the freedom of, of being around during the days. And I actually did prep cooking there initially in the mornings, which again, you know, when you're talking about doing those sorts of volumes, it just, it get, you learn time management and things like that, which, which is hugely helpful. I mean, any, you know, at the end of the day, if you have great time management in a restaurant, you're usually pretty successful overall. So how do you make the transition then to really the fine gourmet cooking that you're doing right now? How did you do How did you acquire your skills? Were that just kind of self-taught? Yeah, I mean, just self-taught. I've always really been into food and really been into wine. And when I got out of um, when I got out of cooking, I, I got into wine and and actually went through the International Sommelier Guild, who was taught at the time before he got an MS was Shane Bjornholm. 
Uh, I went through that at South Seattle Community College, and uh, that was a half a year. Went through that program, and then subsequently went through the quartermaster sommeliers, took their test, and decided I wanted to go that direction. Um, got really into it, and uh, kind of in the part time, I had met Randall Hoff, who was the chef of, of Portofino at the time, which was obviously La Petite Maison. I would go in and work with him um, just to give him extra hand. And you know, with restaurants, it's like having a guy that can come in and cook and help out on busier nights but isn't a fixed entity is always a great thing to have and so he'd call on me when they'd have busier nights or if he needed a night off or something like that and so through that restaurant I got to taste a lot of great wines you know wine reps would come in with bags of wine and and so I was kind of sharpening my palate just tasting through stuff you know and just having the opportunity to taste 40 wines a week for free, essentially, you know, is, is, that's, that can kind of fast track you if you're paying attention to the wines. And, and, and I'd had a discerning palate even as a young child, and I see a lot of that in my son now. It's like just stopping to purely think about what you're eating or drinking or tasting uh, kind of develops that part of your brain. And I was able to move from having trained my palate on food for so long, wine was an easy transition for me, and I got pretty serious about it. Well, you talk about training your palate, and I find that really interesting because there is something to that, right? Whether it's food or wine, you got to kind of stop a little and think about it and maybe and try it again. And especially wine, you're dealing with, with whatever you opened. But with food, there are things with seasoning and so forth that really that's, I think, the difference, and correct me if I'm wrong, between really a chef or just somebody who can follow a recipe. Of course. Yeah, I mean, appreciation of anything, food, wine, music, art, you know, all of that stuff is trained. I mean, anybody can look at a painting and say, well, it's a beautiful painting, but to understand the context of when it was made and the details of it, I mean, I think appreciation for any of that sort of stuff is, it, it takes time. I mean, there, there's people who are naturally gifted and have a great palate naturally, and there's people that have to work at it and understand it. And so, yeah, I think food appreciation is uh, is underrated. And I try to get people to slow down and really kind of think about what they're eating. I mean, certain things are great to eat fast. I mean, I don't need to, like, spend 20 minutes on eating a street taco. Like, that's two bites and I'm done, but I can still appreciate it in that respect. So when I say slow down and think about it, it's actually internalize what you're tasting, internalize. And, and talking about it, you know, Zoe is very discerning as well. And so her and I, you know, if anything, we probably over-scrutinize the stuff that we personally make. Well, I can tell you that in your restaurant, you serve a great French onion soup. I mean, an incredible one. And I love French onion soup, tend to get it wherever I go if it's available on a menu. But there's something about yours where I sit there and I, and I want it to kind of drag on a little bit. And I, 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 I kind of want to wait through it because there are just like these certain tastes that I can't, I can't fully describe – but it just it, it makes the experience different. I mean, is that and is that what you're trying to do when you create these uh, different dishes? Yeah, complexity. You know, I mean, that's the biggest thing. That's kind of the hallmark of what I'm. You know, I, I love food that looks overly simple but is entirely complex when you eat it. And so, if anything, you know, the trend of food where the plate got the plating got really wild and there's 50 ingredients on a plate. You know, and if it didn't look like a carnival sideshow, you weren't doing it right. Like, I never really got into that sort of stuff. And there's some whimsical stuff that I'll do occasionally, and usually that's in the summer when we get a lot of vegetables. It's easy to kind of cut them into interesting shapes and kind of build from that. But my plating tends to be very simple, like a correctly cooked piece of meat with 
with a sauce or, you know, and so if anything, my food is really understated, which gives, you know, it's a naked environment. And, and if the food doesn't deliver it, it's tough. So you see a lot of superfluous food that looks really great, but you taste it and it has no soul or you taste it and it doesn't, it's lukewarm and doesn't really have any passion behind it. Uh, I try to shoot the opposite direction and go really complex, really well made, but more of a subdued kind of uh, appearance to it. And so again, French onion is one of those things where there's, there's not a lot of room to hide. Exactly. But you also do a dish, the airline chicken breast. And this thing is incredible because nothing sounds duller than just a chicken breast. I've never had anything like that. It doesn't taste like any chicken breast I ever had. It's the most wonderful thing. I mean, you can you can taste the butter. You can taste all these things. Is that like the challenge, you know, to take like like what you're talking about, like take something like a chicken breast and kind of say, you think, you know what one of these tastes like? Oh, we can do so much more. Yeah, absolutely. And I resisted for a long time. I mean, we didn't have chicken on the menu for the first five years we were open. And I just, I resisted it to a point of just saying, you know, people are going out, that's not what they want to eat. And then, you know, I, I had a lot of great examples of chicken and thought, okay, fine, I'll, I'll try something. And I actually wound up doing it specifically for truffle season because roast chicken with truffles is like, one of the most delicious things you can eat. And we had some asparagus and we had some morels. So it was like as classic as it gets, you know, asparagus with morels and roast chicken and truffles, like it doesn't get any more French and it doesn't get any more seasonal. And so I put that on the menu and wound up running it on the prefix menu and people freaked out over it. And so, you know, it became a fixed entity because, you know, dishes take on a life of their own and people just not, I mean, they expect it. They, they, they've had it and they want it again. It's like the dish, we're really famously known for a dish that's, it's a seared scallop with a sweet corn and people, that was on the prefix and it got to the point where I was like, I'm not making it anymore because I, it helps me grow if I move past a lot of dishes and that's one that like has to be there. Like we have to be able to serve that. People freak out if we don't have it. And so it, it's pretty funny how dishes take on a life of their own. And subsequently, there's stuff that I thought was amazing. I put it on the menu. I thought it was going to be just this is what's going to, you know, this is what's going to make the menu. And it didn't really resonate with people. So a lot of times stuff that I find is really ethereal food and really exciting to me and, like, peers of, of the trade that, like, geek out on stuff like that, it doesn't resonate with the guests. And it's always hard to tell. You're describing what a lot of the great comedians say where you got to see how the line works. And sometimes it's a funny line, but it just doesn't sell to the public. So you kind of have to play with it, move it around, and you'll find that sweet spot. And I guess it's the same way with dishes you put on a menu. You got to find that sweet spot that appeals to a large group of people. Absolutely. And to be frank, I mean, it's a business. So like there's a lot of things that I can do that don't make sense or make money or are too hard to do for service. Whereas like you go to these temples of gastronomy where they don't necessarily, it's not that they don't have to make money, but like if they, they can afford to do something that effectively is cost them money to do because it's so cool. And I mean, there are certainly times when I won't cut a corner where it would make financial sense because I want the food to be a certain way and I'm willing to bypass that potential earning to make the food the way that I want. And so a lot of places won't do that. And I think that's what you wind up seeing chefs struggles with where it's like this dish would be great with this, but then it pushes your food cost too high or it pushes the labor involved too far. And so, again, it's a balancing act of this dish is amazing, but I also need to pay rent. Yeah, exactly. I mean, this is what Robert Irvine preaches on that TV show he's got on the Food Network. 
it's not enough to just have great tasting food. It's got to make sense and you got to know how to portion it. And it's got to be something that people love, but also that you can make a profit on because otherwise there's no more restaurant. For sure. Absolutely. And I find that, that people, you know, we've been at it almost 10 years and I find that the, the general public in their understanding and appreciation of food has come so far in that amount of time. The Food Network has really sort of opened people's eyes to like food in general. And whether it's good or bad, I think that once people start kind of thinking about food and trying harder at home, the average home cook nowadays is so much better than they ever were before because you have access to better ingredients. So you enjoy that incentive, that competition with everybody out there and having a customer base that knows what they're talking about really kind of gives you the opportunity to really shine. Well, of course, yeah, because if you can exceed expectations, I mean, if you come in with expectation and I exceed it, then I've earned your business forever. You know, that, that's the hard part about what we do is, is that someone comes in the door and the expectation is generally set high because they've heard about the restaurant, their friend gushed about the meal, and so they show up and it, we get a lot of people to say, you know, we had high expectations, but it really exceeded that. And that's always a great compliment because it, it can be tricky sometimes. You know, I remember the first time I ate at the French Laundry and I, and I had to temper my excitement because <laughs> I said, look, there is no way that this place is going to live up to my expectation because I've had the cookbook for a decade. I've cooked everything in it. I love Thomas Keller. I love the idea of the French laundry. I went and not only did it exceed, but it just, it blew my mind. So it was one of those things where it was like, it, it, it just, it, it was shocking. And so I think if we can capture that same sort of magic when people show up, it's just, it's a win-win for everybody. We're going to be, over the next few weeks and months, going through some tips to help the home, uh, the home chef and I know talking to Zoe, this doesn't just stop at the restaurant door. You cook like this at home. Do you feel comfortable that you can kick up people's games? I mean, they're not, they're not going to dedicate their lives to it the way you did. But at the same time, you can make what they do a whole bunch better? Yeah, I mean, I think so. You know, small tips, I think, go a long ways. And a lot of the most classic stuff, just, you know, understanding seasoning, understanding searing meats correctly, understanding what braising really means. I mean, I think a lot of it is you take the most rudimentary techniques and add those into people's everyday cooking lives, and it makes a dramatic difference. You know, I know that my mom, being an all-American cook, like I've showed her some things that has really elevated her cooking a lot. Simply, you know, using real stock. I mean, making stock from a chicken and using that real stock versus the watery stuff you buy from the store. I mean, that simple thing alone... It will elevate the average cook's food significantly, in my opinion. You've been listening to Vegas Never Sleeps with Stephen Maggi, the podcast with new shows loaded twice weekly. Got a guest idea? Email us at info at VegasNeverSleeps.com and catch the show live every Sunday, 11 a.m. Eastern, 8 a.m. Pacific, coast to coast on the Biz Talk Radio Network.